0: Welcome to Episode 29 of the podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 29 the battle is done. Judy is at her ideal weight. Her G-tube is draining well and healthy pink skin surrounds the site. It's Monday, February 18, 1991, and Judy is chatting up Lily while he's examining her. His smile fades though when he realizes she's become intolerant to some of the nutrients in her TPN solutions. He leaves to work on her regimen. At 3:30 p.m., the nurse takes Judy's temperature. 38.7 degrees Celsius. She pages Baxton and he races over. How do you feel? Baxton asks. No worse than usual, Judy replies glibly. He's not so sure. Her abdomen is mildly tender and her skin yellow. He draws blood for culturing through her line and prescribes antibiotics while he waits for the results. Judy's temperature rises to 38.8 degrees Celsius. Baxton prescribes gravel. The hell of aggressive treatment begins again. Lily telephones Cheech's house that night and leaves a message for someone to call him. When I hear about the message, I remember Cliff's frantic phone call of 2 weeks ago and start worrying about Judy. I call Lily back and give him my dad's itinerary and telephone numbers in Belgium and Scotland. Lily catches him in the middle of a talk, but wherever my dad is and no matter the time, he always takes a call about Judy. By Tuesday, Judy's fever has settled in. She feels parched. The pain bounces back, and back on Demerol she goes. When the orderly fetches her for an abdominal ultrasound at 11 a.m., the nurses have to arrange her in a stretcher because she can no longer sit up in a wheelchair. The orderly wheels her into a darkened room at 11.47 a.m. The technician smears her belly with electroconducting jelly, and after sitting down close beside her, pushes a large wand over her skin to search for her spleen, liver, aorta, Kidneys, and fluid collections. She finds Judy's spleen easily. It's 16 centimeters long. The spleen manufactures our killer immune cells. The infection had alerted the spleen to increase production of these cells to hunt down and engorge the invading bacteria. As the bacteria proliferated, so did the killer immune cells, and the spleen grew with each increase in cell production. But despite the ferocious counterattack of the immune cells, the microbial assault continues to take its toll on Judy's energy and emotional stability. After the orderly wheels Judy back into her room and the nurses transfer her to the bed, TPN all the while still infusing into her, Baxton walks in to find Judy dehydrated and in shock. He immediately injects a bolus of normal saline into her line to increase the volume of fluid in her blood vessels and thus increase her blood pressure. At the same time, he discontinues her omeprazole, believing that might have allowed the bugs to grow again. He considers rehydrating her through both her TPN and peripheral lines. At this point, the enterostomal therapist strides in to renew the dressing and pouch over the G-tube at 3.30pm. An hour later, the nurses remove them and apply gauze over the site. Then they put the dressing and pouch back on. They increase her pain medications. Miriam saunters in, unaware of Judy's reversal. Meme! I'm so sick! I'm so sick! I've never been this sick! Judy repeats over and over when she sees Miriam, her face creased, her voice wispy. Shocked! Miriam flies out to the nurse's station and screams at them. What is going on? She freaks early the next morning, too, when she sees her mother in her darkened room with a pounding headache and being given increasing doses of Demerol. She finds Baxton and asks him to explain his plan. The enterostomal therapists and Judy's ward nurses, he explains, are all working to keep her G-tube site freshly dressed and from irritating her skin. They're sponging her hot skin to cool her down. He's changing antibiotics to find the right combination to beat the infection. He's changing her TPN solutions to best nourish her. Miriam listens to all this and then sees a clock. She has to leave for work. But not before she declares that she's coming back that night with her friend, a male nurse. He'll tell her what Judy's deterioration means. When Miriam is gone, Baxton looks again at Judy's chart and culture records. Yesterday there was G negative. Today heavy proteus pseudomonas, heavy streptococci, and two other G negative bacteria flourish in her G tube. He asks Judy how she is feeling. Judy whispers that she feels very, very sick. He apologizes as he turns the light on to examine her properly. She's less jaundiced, but her abdomen remains tender. The G-tube is draining well without the pouch, and though she is still dry, she's starting to become edematous. Baxton goes off service at 5.30 p.m. Lily comes on duty and checks in on Judy. He flushes her lines with urokinase, which has just arrived from TGH, in order to unclot them and rid them of any bugs. He had experienced some problems in getting the urokinase from TGH and hadn't thought to ask Cliff, much to Cliff's displeasure, for he and Judy have been part of the TPN program since its inception and he knows more about the urokinase and how to get it than the staff at St. Mike's. He could have arranged for Marlene to send it to them immediately. Instead, it took TGH two days to ship it to St. Mike's. That night, Miriam and her friend find her mother erratic and delirious, all control lost. Two IV poles stand on either side of the bed. Tubes full of liquids and drugs snake into her arms, and an oxygen mask dangles off her face. Oblivious to her chains, Judy is trying to get out of bed. Miriam rushes to halt her and to put her mask back on. Judy fights. Miriam wins temporarily. Suddenly, Judy yanks off her oxygen mask and starts gasping, pleading, For Marlene! for Marlene! Marlene will know what's really going on!' "'Mom, you've got to keep the oxygen on!' She puts her mom's mask back on and grabs the phone to page Marlene. The call beeps Marlene's pager while she is lying back in a dentist's chair and having her teeth examined. Apologizing to her dentist, she borrows his phone and dials the number on her pager. "'Mom would like to see you,' Miriam says. "'What's happening?' She's not feeling very well. They gave her some oxygen just when she needs it. I'm in Barry. Marlene looks at her watch. It's four o'clock. Ask Judy if she wants me to come tonight and it will be dinner before I can make it. Or is tomorrow okay? Miriam asks her mom if tomorrow is okay for her. Mom said tomorrow would be fine. Okay. Can I speak to Judy? Well, mom's quite tired and exhausted. She said she'd speak to you tomorrow. She just wants to see you. Fine, but it isn't fine. Marlene doesn't really understand what is going on because Judy hangs on to her usual demeanor of not wanting to admit that all hell is breaking loose and that she needs her now, even if it's an inconvenience. That kind of playing down is typical for only those patients with truly bad chronic illnesses. Miriam hangs up and turns to see Judy putting her legs over the side of her bed. Her body needs air and nourishment and instinctively nudges her to sit up. But she tries to stand up, too. Miriam fights her back down and replaces the oxygen mask. Judy wants none of this. Meanwhile, Miriam's friend watches the battle between mother and daughter. When he has to leave, he tells Miriam softly, I don't really want to upset you, but there's the smell of a dead body in this room. Well, maybe you might be right, but I think it's just the smell of all the drugs and the smell of all this, you know, gastric juices and bile and all that kind of stuff. She doesn't want to hear what he has to say, what she brought him to tell her, the truth. Even so, she's so desperate that she calls her dad. Mom's sick. You should come down right away. She was okay on Sunday. Yeah, but I really think you should come down now. He drives down against rush hour traffic shortly after St. Mike's also contacts him. When he arrives, he and Miriam speak with the resident, who explains that not keeping her oxygen mask on makes Judy delirious and fidgety, and makes her want to get up. Miriam writes down her Stouffville school number in case there are any problems. The doctor stops Judy's TPN that evening for three hours, because Judy cannot metabolize and use any of the nutrients. An hour and a half later, another resident examines Judy. At some point, somebody prescribes heparin in a paradoxical attempt to stop her internal bleeding. Sepsis consumes the blood factors required to clot the blood. Sepsis also causes the liver to reduce its production of the protein that aids clotting. At the same time, sepsis changes the lining of the blood vessels. Normal lining prevents clots from forming on it. Altered lining allows the bacteria to form microclots, which further injures the blood vessels. Heparin dissolves these clots and so prevents more bleeding. Then another resident orders the heparin stop for six hours. An hour and a half later, Lily reassesses Judy and resumes her TPN. At 1.30 a.m., Judy wakes up, gasping from the pain lancing through her body. The resident restarts the heparin and orders oxygen, which she continues to resist. And so Judy's care goes. The morning of thursday february twenty first nineteen ninety one Judy moans to Baxton that pain burns in her chest and that she cannot breathe. He fits his stethoscope into his ears and asks her to sit forward. He listens as she breathes in and out according to his instructions. He hears crackles in her lungs, muscles not used to doing all the work are being used to inhale. This is known as bronchial breathing. Next, he examines her face. Arms, hands, chest, abdomen, back, legs, and feet. Both of her feet are now swollen from edema, and greenish fluid flows out of her G tube. He increases the percentage of oxygen to 40, and he orders a stat ECG. They find infiltration in the upper zone of her left lung and increased density in the left base of the lung. The left costophrenic angle is blunted. Anxiously, he compares that to the ECG done three days earlier it has changed for the worse. He has the IV nurse draw blood to measure how quickly Judy's blood is clotting. Then he has her start a second IV in Judy's right forearm. They ask her the standard three questions to ascertain her level of consciousness. What day is it? Where are you? What is your name? Judy answers them. It's 10 a.m. The doctors telephone Miriam. They perform a pulmonary angiogram. Lying in the bed, Looking up into the lights overhead, oxygen mask on, Judy dreads the coming procedure. Unable to cope, unable to breathe, in pain beyond belief, she lashes out at the nurses blindly and battles them to keep the mask off. The team tries to calm her down and gives her narcotics to ease her pain. Once she stops thrashing, the doctors start the three-hour procedure. They insert a catheter into the right vein that runs up the thigh to the pelvis. And push the catheter up the vein until it enters a large vein just under her clavicle and thence down into the right side of her heart. All blood returning from the rest of the body flows into the right side of the heart, and then the heart pumps it into the lungs where it is oxygenated. Once the catheter tip is in place in the heart, the doctors inject dye into the catheter. The dye shoots out of the tip of the catheter into her heart. Tremendous warmth floods Judy's body and she becomes faint. The heart pumps blood and dye into her lungs, and the latter highlights the lungs' network of veins and arteries. They photograph it. Her left lung has collapsed at the base. Segments of her right lower lobe and possibly her upper lobe contain clots. Miriam follows Judy into her room as she is wheeled back in. The nurses check her right femoral site where the doctors had inserted the catheter. It is dry. The nurses leave Miriam alone with Judy. And unrecognizable Judy. Judy's angry. She wants out of bed. She battles Miriam to get out. She convulses and speaks insensibly about driving a school bus. Miriam just wants someone in there to help her calm her mom down. Miriam wants to leave and she's angry at the nurses for abandoning her. But she can't leave her mother alone. Judy hollers that she wants to go to the washroom. Miriam tries to support her, but Judy shakes and her legs give way. She cannot walk. Miriam cannot fathom giving her mother a bedpan, and she pushes the intercom button and yells up at the speaker for the nurses to come and give Judy a bedpan. They won't. Panicked, Miriam telephones Marlene and then Cliff at Helen Jolly's, a longtime friend in East Toronto who lives next door to her sister Vivian Larkin, where Cliff is staying, to come back down. While she waits, she pummels the nurses in residence with the question What are you going to do for her? All that long day, they promise her that they are going to transfer her mom to the ACU, but no beds are available. No beds, no beds is all she hears. They all have to wait for someone to get better or to die to make space for Judy. Marlene finally arrives at 6 p.m. Judy recognizes her, but is quite confused. Where's the pain, Judy? It's everywhere. It's all over. Marlene places Judy's mask back on her face. Judy yells at her and rips the mask off. Marlene puts it back on and reasons with her as to why she should keep her mask on. Judy seems to understand briefly, but then confusion clouds her face and she tears at her mask, shouting, don't do that. I know I have to do it, but don't do that. Marlene patiently explains and the two battle back and forth. For Marlene, it's like returning to that nightmare 10 years earlier when they would nearly lost her. Still, she stays to support Miriam and Cliff as they wait and wait and wait for the transfer to ACU. An orderly comes in. He wheels Judy out of her room. She's moaning, her head is rolling back and forth. Her muscles are restless, and she looks like a bagpipe with all her lines. The three watch her disappear down the hall to the ACU. Ten minutes later, the ACU nurses and residents examine, interview, poke, and prod Judy. Dima engulfs her whole body. Her skin is hot and dry and yellow. She's polka-dotted with baruses. The bacteria are eating her capillaries' walls, and the vessels bleed silently everywhere. All the moisture has been sucked out of her mouth, yet copious amounts of greenish putrid fluid stain her G-tube dressing. They ask her the standard three questions to ascertain her level of consciousness. What day is it? Where are you? What is your name? Judy does not answer. It's 10 p.m. Cliff and Miriam fearfully enter her room together. ACU policy dictates a five minute visit once per hour only. The sight is unlike anything they have seen before. The technology is wondrous. A dozen monitors line the wall behind Judy's bed, wires curl and flow across the floor, and two nurses watch her constantly, using handheld calculators to keep track of her progress. They feel lost in this ocean of hospital machinery surrounding Judy. Cliff takes Judy's hand in his shaking one and murmurs, Hey, Bones! and then he stands and looks at her, unable to comprehend her state. Miriam glances at her father and then back at her mother. Time is up. They leave for the night, Judy in the care of strangers in the room that echoes with the beeps and hum of the equipment keeping her alive. And fighting the bacterial invasion. While Judy tosses and moans and opens and closes her eyes, the night nurses and residents watching over her increase her oxygen to 100%, relocate one of her IVs when the skin above it reddens, clean her mouth, change her stained dressings, reposition her while they cleanse and treat her skin, give her morphine more and more frequently, struggle again and again to draw blood from her scarred and flat veins bathe her and calm her, once again change her dressing, and replace her bedpan with the catheter. All this between midnight and five in the morning. When Lily looks in on her the morning of February 22nd, he decides that her central line must be pulled ASAP. It must be the source of her infection. The ID consultant and his staff also believe that her TPN line is septic with proteus vulgaris and agree that her central line ought to be removed and that a bronchoscopy be done. But Cliff rejects their idea. Judy would be petrified if she wakes up to find her line gone. Furthermore, he knows more about her line than they do, they argue. But he refuses to budge unless Geege agrees. Lily reaches Jeej, who tells him that the catheter is very old and liable to break if removed. He advises against it. Lily goes back to discuss it with the ID staff. They believe that her shock is worsening and that the only remedy is to remove the line. Lily calls Jeej again. Whatever you do, don't take the catheter out, Jeej orders Lily. Lily again speaks to the ID staff. They reiterate that they have no choice. To complicate matters, nephrology refuses to put Judy on dialysis unless the surgeons remove her central line. There's no point treating her if the source of her infection remains inside her body. Marlene disagrees. Miriam believes the doctors, and Cliff refuses without Cheege's consent. Lily goes back to the phone. Would you be absolutely against it because the shock is getting much worse? he asks Cheege. Gege, thousands of kilometers away and unable to examine Judy himself, can see their point. I personally don't like the idea, but you know, if the shock is getting worse and this is the only way that you can save her life, then chances are this is the source of her infection. Lily pushes home his point. Finally, Gege declares, pull the catheter out, but I don't think this is going to solve the problem. He admonishes Lily. Don't forget, there's another catheter that's been left inside. In other words, the other line could also be the source, and removing the functioning line would solve nothing. The catheter breaks in half during the operation. They replace it with a Hickman line. When Lily calls him frantic with worry over this further complication, Jeege senses that they are in a barrel at the lip of Niagara Falls. He outlines the two options they have somehow extract the residual line and geographically or surgically. An option, he warns Lily, that is not immediately viable because of the age and fragility of the line, or position the tip of another central line near the end of the old one. In the meantime, Lily infuses antibiotics at the site to sterilize the line. Edema continues to expand Judy like rising dough. Using their arsenal of drugs and solutions, they cannot stop the seepage from her capillaries into the surrounding cellular spaces. Judy no longer opens her eyes on command, although her reflexes remain strong and she moves her arms and legs on purpose. Her eyes open suddenly and just as suddenly shut. She is cold. The new nurse on shift lays a warming blanket over her and then conducts her standard beginning of shift routine. Check Judy from head to toe, noting all her vital signs. Examine her lines to ensure the solutions still drip into her veins. Look at the monitoring equipment ensure the alarms are set, and check that the emergency equipment is ready for action. Cliff finds comfort staying with his old friend Vivian. She and her sister Helen live side by side, running in and out of each other's houses as if the buildings were one. They take care of Cliff together, doing his laundry, cooking for him as per Judy's instructions, and listening for as long as he needs to talk. He takes his time getting ready in the morning. For one thing, he goes to bed late, And for another, the doctors conduct their rounds in the morning. It's better to arrive after they've seen Judy. He takes the T.D.C. to the hospital since parking is so difficult to find and expensive downtown. He walks through the automatic glass doors at the hospital's Queen Street entrance after lunchtime and finds his way through the ancient halls to the waiting room. He sits down, dreading his five minute visit with Judy. Sometimes he needs several hours to get up the nerve to go in and see her. But he knows that Judy knows he is there in the waiting room, and that he always arrives at the same time after the noon hour, and always leaves at 9.30 p.m. Finally, he goes in. Cliff takes her icy hand in his, and speaks comforting words softly to her for as long as he can control his shaking body. Sometimes he rubs her legs, trying to erase her aches and pains. This swelling body cannot be his Judy. Seeing his wife getting sicker and sicker is so very hard. his only comfort, his faith in the nurses and doctors at St. Mike's. when it becomes too ghastly for his senses, often before the five-minute limit is up, he rushes out of the room. Miriam joins him in the small white-painted waiting-room. She sits on one of the two chairs across from the one couch in front of the table strewn with a few stale magazines. A TV stands in one corner its dreary, flickering screen hypnotizes the room's occupants when they have nothing to say. Strangers wait with them, waiting for their loved ones to pull through or die, knowing that without ACU care, all of them would surely die. Cliff tells anyone, them or visitors from Fenland Falls or family, about Judy and the horrors of her condition. When she can't stand it anymore, Miriam flees to the nearby Eaton Center. A couple of times she convinces Cliff to accompany her to mister Green Jean's for its two large burgers and buffalo chips, in order to break the monotony of the waiting room and as a more satisfying alternative to the snack bar downstairs. Cliff never leaves for long though. Miriam needs a time off. Saturday night they learn that Judy has MSOF. The doctor outlines her problems in a matter of fact voice Encephalopathy, respiratory failure, renal failure sepsis, hepatic insufficiency. The medical terms terrify them, yet mean nothing. Despite her horrible prognosis, all of the doctors and nurses treat her aggressively, which includes inserting a painful arterial line to monitor her blood pressure directly. But if Judy's renal failure becomes full-blown, her prognosis will worsen. Still, Judy recognizes them, and this buoys their Judy's temperature drops to 34.5 degrees Celsius at 1.30 a.m. on Sunday in spite of the warming blanket. The nurses humidify her through the ventilator, trying to warm her internally. Then Judy's oral airway starts to bleed into her mouth. The nurses try to suction the blood out, but Judy bites down on the device. Her mouth remains bloodstained despite repeated attempts at suctioning. The nurses continue to deal with crisis after crisis until the penultimate one at 10.08 a.m. Judy's heart stops. Alarms scream. Dr. Guslitz runs into her room and starts CPR. He converts her heart rhythm to a normal one with good blood pressure three minutes later. Judy's heart races. Guslitz thumps her chest and recommences CPR. Her heart rhythm returns to normal. The nurses immediately check her baseline neurological status. It is fine but now she has fractured ribs, a common side effect of CPR, and not surprising given her brittle bones. Guslitz talks to Cliff when he arrives at St. Mike's about her heart attack. He hypothesizes that her attack was a result of a pulmonary embolism, a small clot that had torn away from the wall of a blood vessel, traveled through her veins with the returning blood, and entered her lungs where it lodged itself, blocking off the artery and squeezing out life-giving blood, the long-term ramifications worry him. It is time to discuss a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. Guslitz approaches the topic carefully. Although the heart attack has not changed her condition, she probably needs life support he explains. She wouldn't want life prolonged artificially if there's no hope for survival. Cliff acknowledges reluctantly and agrees to a DNR order. We'll of course continue all of Judy's medications but in the event of a second heart attack, we won't resuscitate her. You understand? Cliff nods and sits down, head in hands. He tells Miriam when she arrives at 2 p.m. She cries, no, 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 we want them to try everything. If she's going to die, we should let her die on our own. When the time comes, it comes. No, I want them to try. Her mom always fought for life. She will never give up fighting if she has a chance. The DNR is taking that chance away. Besides, she still has so much to say and to do with her mother that she is not ready to let go. Miriam and Cliff argue until he agrees to rescind the order. They go to inform Lily that she wants them to try CPR, but if unsuccessful after the first few minutes, the doctor should stop it. They agree to an autopsy since Judy will prefer that over having her body sent to a medical school. The ACU removes the DNR order officially at 8 p.m. Marlene spends that week with them, and when she's simply too exhausted to make the long trip downtown, she calls Cliff at Helen's at 10.30 p.m., knowing he'll be there and still be wide awake talking to his friends about his day. She sits between Cliff and Miriam. Cliff asks her about Judy's medical care, seeking to understand what his eyes cannot believe then Miriam asks her a question or asserts that Cliff just doesn't understand. Marlene turns back to Cliff and asks him what he thinks Miriam has to say. Slowly over the days, she translates less and less as they start conversing more and more directly to each other. Relieved at their detente, she asks Cliff where Julie is. He refuses to discuss it. He had, in fact, spoken to Julie. She had wanted to come down to support him, but Cliff told her that Judy is in a coma and would not want Julie to see her that way. And so Julie first keeps up to date through Miriam, then later through Cliff. But when she receives Judy's letters on Tuesday, she knows that Judy no longer wants to fight. Her death is coming. That same day, Cliff knows it too, as does Marlene. Neither can bear the thought of Judy being impaired or physically dysfunctional assuming she survives her ordeal and agrees she is better off dying. They keep vigil. Marlene and Cliff walk arm in arm into Judy's humming room with its LED readouts and steady beeping and hissing respirator. Although her clinical mind understands the Judy she sees, Marlene does not recognize her patient, her friend. Each time they visit, Judy is bigger. Her cheeks blow up, obliterating her nose. Her eyes peep out from between her massive forehead and round cheeks. Her lips swell. Her arms grow to the size of a man's legs. Her skin splits here and there, and her body spills over the confines of the bed. They return to the waiting room with relief. Cliff talks for hours about Judy, their life together before 1970, and her strength. He weeps. Worry wrinkles his eyes and reddens their sockets. Suddenly anger takes over, anger that her life cannot be in vain, that others should not receive the travesty of care she received at TGH. He vents his frustration with Miriam and asks Marlene to please reason with her about the DNR order. She does so in private, listening with compassion to what Miriam thinks her mother wants, intuitively understanding Miriam is not ready to let go, educating her about the ramifications of the order, giving her the time she needs to mull it over, make peace, and assent, Miriam does so at 5.20 p.m. on Saturday, March 2, 1991. By this time, Judy has no neck, no chin, and no discernible features. Her eyes bulge out so much that the nurses had taped them closed for the duration of the visits. She lies motionless, looking like a great big balloon ready to burst. She weighs about 140 kilograms in water. No matter how much fluid is pumped into her blood vessels, more oozes out and into her tissues, leaving less and less blood for her part to pump and causing her body to expand. The ACU staff had eradicated the infection but lost control of the resultant metabolic effects. Jeech flies back to Toronto late Friday night. On Saturday, he drives down to St. Mike's to see Cliff and Judy. Miriam looks up when she hears him walk into the waiting room. Her heart lifts. God has arrived. He will cure Judy, because Jeege can fix anything. He listens to their story and then goes in with Cliff to visit Judy. When he last saw her, Judy was healthy and jibing him. Now she is a large shell for her brave but tired spirit. What should we do, pleads Cliff. The outcome is very poor, and frankly, just continuing life support is not a very good idea, and that is the decision to be made, explains Jeegee. Cliff looks down at Judy. You know, I think she's suffering too much and she's going nowhere. Well, we could try one other thing. We could try to get some antibiotics against endotoxins. Well, if that's what you think you'd like to do, try it. But they do not. Marlene telephones Cliff at Helen's that night. Helen answers. Hello? It's Marlene Close, the nurse calling. Cliff takes the phone and with a quivering voice answers, Hello? It's Marlene. I just called to see how Judy was. Oh, you scared me half to death. Thank God. I thought for sure you were going to tell me she's dead. No, she's not going to make it, you know. I know. We renewed her d n r order and have stopped treating her aggressively. It's just a matter of time. I've made the funeral arrangements with her minister. They say goodbye. Miriam has come to terms with Judy's impending death. Julie knows. Judy spared Cindy seeing her die. Jeed has flown home. Cliff has accepted. Judy sinks into her ultimate crisis. Her heart stops at three fifty-five a.m. on Sunday, March third, nineteen ninety-one. Welcome to episode thirty of the podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story. I am the author, Shireen Boy, Chapter 30, Resurrection. Judy looks dreadful to Laura's trained eye. She's huge. Substances pour out of her everywhere. Laura hops from one spot to another, mopping up the spillage with fresh dressings. As she dries one part of Judy's body, a leak springs forth from another, and she rushes to wipe it up. She runs out of dressings and leaves to fetch new ones. She hurries back into the room, but the bed is empty. Oh my gracious, where is she? What's happened? Questions tumble out of her and echo in the empty room as she looks frantically this way and that in vain. Laura? Laura stops. She cranes her head up, looking down at her from the loft over part of the room as Judy. She's sitting on the loft's edge, her smile filling the room with light. She's radiant. She wears no glasses. No tubes come out of her. Her skin shines. Her eyes sparkle. Her hair bounces with vitality and it gleams in the light. She is absolutely healthy. Laura cannot speak. I'm fine. Laura wakes up with a smile. The pre-dawn hours of early March darkness blanket the room, but she sees only the glow of Judy's perfect healing. Epilogue. At the time of Judy's death, which the autopsy found was most probably due to septicemia, she was the longest living person on TPN, surviving for about 20 years and five months. After her death, Doris Johnston took over that title. She went on TPN in October 1972 and was the third person to do so. Like Judy, she had been healthy most of her life, was married, and just wanted to go home and look after her five children. Unlike Judy, she eventually was able to eat and drink a little, although like most on TPN, she had to time her eating and drinking so that she wouldn't suddenly have to go to the bathroom in the middle of a midway ride. When most people on TPN have to go, they have to go now. No waiting. The only other person I have heard of who was like Judy in that she could not eat one bite of food ever was la Penny. Doris died September twenty fifth, two thousand and six after being widowed for well over a decade, seeing at least nine grandchildren born, and remarrying. She lived on TPN for almost 34 years. Today, TPN is used to help anyone who cannot eat or whose bowels do not allow him or her to be nourished from food. The latter may be able to eat, but remain malnourished. This includes people with bowel diseases, cancer, AIDS, and cystic fibrosis to name a few. It's used more often in the United States than in Canada, and physicians around the world have come to Toronto to study this technique or have learned from Geege at conferences in many, many countries. Geege and Judy revolutionized nutritional medicine, and people everywhere continue to benefit. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you're interested, you may purchase the print versions, either trade paperback or hardcover, at any online store or by request through your local bookstore. You may also purchase a multi format ebook at Smashwords, Amazon Kindle Store, Sony Reader Store, or Apple iBooks. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to Lifeliner The Judy Taylor Story a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible. Podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy. one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King is Back by Echoed. Licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. Thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.